I'll let you decide how today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves combines the sacred and the profane. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and we've invited some guys from across the pond to join us for a pint. Each region's got the different beer. We'll find out how beer's brewed, enjoyed, and appreciated in different European cultures. This is not something we talk about for 100 years. This is generations, you know, centuries that have been uh, brewing beers. Then we'll move from hops to hippies, as travel writer David Farley describes a rather eccentric medieval village just outside of Rome. It's home to artists, New Agers, Bohemians of a certain age, and one very distinctive religious relic that came up missing from a local church a few years ago. Tradition says it was an actual part of the body of Jesus Christ. Theologically, you could say the only piece of flesh he would have left on earth after he ascended into heaven. Appreciating relics and beer. And I got no problem with that. Skull, cheers, chin-chin, gesundheit, prost. <laughs> it's Travel with Rick Steves. We're getting acquainted with a small Italian hill town with a surprising history today on Travel with Rick Steves. The village of Calcutta is home to what some would call a rather irreverent religious mystery, which just adds another flavor to the town's funky vibe. But first, we've reserved a seat at the table for you to join us as some of my friends from Belgium, England, Ireland, and Edmonds join us for a little appreciation of the beer cultures of Europe. Last time I was in the Czech Republic, my friend told me that Czech workers didn't go west for job opportunities like everybody else when the Cold War was over because they couldn't bear to leave their local beer. In Belgium, the place is filled with beer pilgrim tourists. They come there for the beloved monk-made beer. Munich hosts one of the biggest parties anywhere in the world each Oktoberfest, and it's a beer party. Guinness and Carlsberg are the dominant patrons of the arts in Ireland and Denmark, putting beer money to good use. Hey, beer is part of the culture in Europe, and we're going to explore it right now with four experts in beer. Fernando Mengi joins us from Belgium, Roy Nichols from England, Stephen McPhillamy from Ireland, and Dave Herline's been enjoying beer as a tour guide all over Europe from the United States. Fernando Mengi from Belgium. Hey, Eric. How are you? Good. How are you? Tell me your favorite Belgian beer and why. It's it's a tricky question because you know that Belgium has over 500 or 600 different kinds of beer. My personal beer, maybe I'm kind of more of a wimpy kind of a beer drinker, but I like the Creek. That's a cherry beer, isn't it? It's a cherry beer. It's it's a brewery that's uh, not too far from where I live and it's uh, called Castel Beer, Castle Beer. Okay. And they brew some fantastic creek. It's not the famous creek that you know from from Belgium, but this is a local creek, and I like it. A connoisseur of beer can actually prefer a cherry beer. Wouldn't some people say, oh, come on. Oh, no, 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 no. Because a... if you have only four kinds of beer in a country, I would understand that you pick one and then be critical about it. But we have over five, 600, and you can pick your own beer right. that you like, any beer. Ferdinando Mengi, representing the beer culture of Belgium. Roy Nichols from England, tell me about your favorite example of the beer that England produces. Well, England produces a vast majority of different beers, hundreds of different breweries, producing lots of different varieties of different strengths and different colors and different tastes. But my favorite, probably all, all of them, is a local beer. There's a brewery called the Piddle Brewery, named after the valley where it's, it's situated. And it does a lovely, nice, hoppy beer, which is very, very nice to drink at any time of the Piddle. day. Piddle beer. Piddle Brewery. And, of course, you, everybody knows what piddle means. <laughs> so you like it for the name or for the beer? Uh, for a bit of both. I've actually got a T-shirt that says, I love piddle. Okay, well, we'll talk more about the micro-brews of England momentarily. Dave Herline, you've traveled all over Europe. Um, I have. And I know that, when appropriate, you enjoy a good beer. What's your favorite beer experience anywhere? 
even though I'm a big fan of German beers, I would have to say Belgium. I got to defer to Ferdi, and I've often been there with a bunch of Belgian friends. Every round, they order me their favorite beer, so I'm trying all these different kinds. And as Ferdi will attest, in Belgium, every beer has a different shape, glass, and different flavor. And then I look around, and I realize that the Belgians I'm with, they're all ordering the same beer each time for themselves, and it's just me being like a guinea pig sampling all these crazy beers. But uh, those are pretty some pretty memorable days there in those Belgian pubs. And of all the beers in Belgium that you've had, is there any one that you wanted to remember the name of? You know, Belgium has a lot of these beers with these quasi-biblical names like Adam and Eve and Forbidden Fruit and all that. And Duvel is one I remember quite a bit, is which I think means devil, which is uh, pre- pretty darn strong. A couple of those, and you're um, is, on your way. Is that a monastic brew? You know, I don't think that Duvel is, but you're right that Belgium has um, many beers brewed by monks. All right. Stephen McPhillamy coming to us from Ireland. Uh, tell me about your uh, favorite beer from Ireland. Well, Rick, I come from the country that probably is best identified by a beer. Ireland, of course, being synonymous with Guinness. I think they did some research recently that nobody could identify our flag in the survey of international people. No one recognized the shamrock. No one recognized the harp. Well, maybe 10%. But everyone, 80%, recognized Ireland through the pint of Guinness. So it's a very symbolic part of our island and our nation. And I don't want to sound too cliched, but I would be loyal to the old Uncle Arthur's brew. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about beer in Europe and beer culture in Europe. When you travel around, there's a certain regional pride. I know when you go to Ireland, if you're in the south, you'd, you'd probably go with Murphy's, wouldn't you? Aye. Well, Guinness is still the national brand, you know, but if you went down south to a place called Cork, where young students walk around wearing these big red T-shirts saying People's Republic of Cork, they're all drinking Murphy's <laughs> religiously. <laughs> Never Guinness. And, it, and it's more, uh, I think, an anti-Dublin thing as, as much as, to be quite honest with you, Murphy's looks like Guinness. It costs the same as Guinness, and it tastes like Guinness. Is that right? Yeah, and I, I need to be careful when I say uh, it tastes like Guinness because I'll be lynched the next time I'm in Cork. <laughs> well, I'm surprised you say that. Because <laughs> but I, I don't find it all that all that hugely different. And that's the problem with Irish beer is that we have one of the world's most famous beers, maybe the most famous, but all these other countries have got beer that, let's be quite frank, just tastes better, in my opinion. Are you saying that? Is that right? Uh, yeah. like, I can't believe I just heard that. <laughs> I mean, Guinness is a night. I love Guinness. Because for me, it feels like it's a patriotic thing to drink my beer. And the corporation that owns Guinness must love hearing me say that because they know they have me by the you-know-what. Yeah. <laughs> I'm drinking that brand for patriotic reasons. But when I was a wee boy growing up, like whenever I had a fever, my grandfather would often give me a little tipple of a bottle of Guinness just to okay, calm so me down. Did it, Guinness makes you strong. I think I've seen ah, that. It's supposed to be full that. of iron. Apparently, they used to give it to pregnant women in Dublin. All right. To yeah. give it to pregnant oh, women. Oh, to women who just uh, had given birth, sorry. In the maternity unit. <laughs> <laughs> in the maternity unit. I've just had I see. A, a for, a, here, for so. To get them strong again. Now, Dave, uh, you're married to a Dane. I am. And in Denmark, there's uh, two sort of the Pepsi and the Coke of beers would be Tuborg and Carlsberg, right? Exactly. Yep. Is, is there a sort of a loyalty on that? Or do people come down on one side or the other? There is, yes. Yeah. Some people prefer the Carlsberg, especially the people like the Elephant, the stronger um, version of Carlsberg. Other people prefer the Tuborg uh, green beer, but I think now it's a case, it's really a trend worldwide, that breweries buy out other breweries. So I think now Tuborg is owned by Carlsberg. This is a frustration for me all over the place, is that big companies are buying all the little companies up and disguising the fact that they have bought them out. All over Britain, I know there's pubs that work very hard to seem like they're one-offs when in actuality they're part of chains, right? That's true. Uh, And certainly this process started after the Second World War and continued through the 60s and 70s where all the small breweries were disappearing, being replaced by the large companies. 
But since the 1970s, there's a complete turnaround uh, when there's been a return to local ales, local beers. And in fact, there's an organisation called Camera, which is the campaign for real ale. Small microbreweries, as they would be called in the States, are on the increase even in this economic climate. And when I travel around England, that's, I think that's just a good travel tip. Uh, when you're in a little town at the pub, ask what's brewed locally. And because it makes all the difference. What's the, local... the beer in uh, Store in the Wall? There's a beer brewed just outside the uh, town. Um, of course, yes. Uh, Hook Norton. It's the I Hawk love Norton. that beer. Yeah, and I, just, beer. I, I wouldn't have known it. You wouldn't stumble into it in York or Durham or Well, it's London. brewed in one of the local villages close to Store in the Wall. It's only sent out to sort of half a dozen pubs in the area or something like that. I'm impressed by how, of course, Europe is really into its wine, but it also appreciates fine beer. They can even rise above their national loyalties, as, as Stephen McPhillamy just said from Ireland here. He knows there's better beers elsewhere, and he will not um, suffer too much to miss that. I was in Paris. You go to a fine wine shop in Paris. They don't have French beer, but they'll have Belgian beer, because apparently the French recognize that Belgian beer is better than the French beer. Uh, Ferdi Mengi from Belgium? Well, it's like uh, Stephen said. I mean, people recognize a quality beer, and Belgium has so many quality beers, uh, and, and that's perfectly right in France. And they'll export it to Paris, and even well, yeah, the sophisticates in Paris, they'll go for a fine Belgian beer on occasion. Of course. I mean, and the French know that. And of course, the French have their wines, and we have our beers. Well, so. would a French order a Spanish or a Portuguese or Italian beer, or would that just be considered not as good a beer? It's inferior. That's, yeah. Come that, on, be that, frank. Isn't that bad beer compared to the beer countries? Well, I'm, I'm a half Italian from origin, and I think that a, a uh, beer Peroni gives me a headache for three days. I know. You go to Rome and you find these people You find these people drinking uh, Peroni, and you kind of go, what's with that? You could yeah. get a good Pilsner Urquil or, or a good yeah. Lohenbrau or, 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 or something Danish, like or, but they don't drink sometimes those Italian beers. And in Ireland now as well, you see, we have just the same problem where Guinness own practically everything. We have a, a lovely ruby red ale down in a city called Kilkenny called Smithicks. S-M-I-T-H-W-I-C-K-S, which all tourist Ireland pronounce Smithwicks. But Guinness have owned that. They own Kilkenny. They own the Harp Lager. It's just it's a big corporation buying everything. And I love when I go to Europe and go to Belgium or France or somewhere and travel. Each region's got the different beer. In Ireland, everywhere except for Cork has pretty much got Guinness just bombarded with the stuff. The other problem in, in Ireland with Guinness is that a lot of young Irish people are no longer drinking it. I think Budweiser is the biggest selling beer in Ireland now. I've got a theory about that because as everything revs up with this global economy and so on, and, and Europe is starting to work as hard as uh, Americans as far as vacation time and everything, uh, a heavy stout is just a little bit behind the times and you can get a lighter lager and it would be more in keeping with the lifestyles. Yeah, I think, that, that? I think that's definitely true because... All right, Budweiser's got amazing advertising spend, but then so does Guinness. Right. Uh, but young people in Ireland aren't drinking the Guinness because it's seen as too heavy, maybe a wee bit old-fashioned, and it takes three minutes to pour, to be ready. Now, I love that waiting three minutes. I've got no problem waiting for the black to turn into white, but not all young Irish people have that patience. Now, hasn't Guinness been sort of struggling because they had a Guinness ice and they had a Guinness lager, I believe. Yeah, they came up with a cold flow to try and make it more appealable and they had a, a one called Bio, B-E-O, which was a, a white Guinness that they tried to make appealing to women to drink because in Ireland... A women's I, Guinness. Well, <laughs> you know, I might get hung for saying this, but I've rarely seen an Irish woman ever drink a pint of Guinness. When you go to Ireland, you're going to see tens of thousands of women drinking Guinness and I would bet my house and my car on it that they're a tourist. Is that right? Now, my, my understanding... Maybe not my car, but my house. <laughs> We're giving you a chance to take a break from the cares of the world right now and to join us for A Round with the Lads in an archived Travel with Rick Steves interview. I think you'll agree with me that it's aged rather nicely. Our pub mates are Ferdinando Mengi from Belgium, 
Roy Nichols from England, Stephen McPhillamy from Ireland, and Dave Herline, who oversees all the maps we produce here at Rick Steves Europe and has put in his time researching the finer points of Europe with us. The people drink water from the rock. All across Europe, I'm impressed by how there's a, a connection with the monastic culture and beer. When we think about the best beers in Germany, Andex. Mm-hmm. Dave, talk a little bit about the association with the church and beer in Germany and Austria. Well, I think the monk culture has to do with back in medieval times, the monks, uh, well, let's face it, their life wasn't all that exciting, so beer gave them a little bit of fun. Also, they had to fast for long periods, but they were allowed to drink liquids, and so Beer, you know, referred to sometimes as liquid bread, provided them a lot of nourishment. The ingredients were cheap and available. When the monks wanted to sell their beers, they didn't have to pay taxes, and so it was a nice source of income for them as well. And there was opportunity for people to go down to the monastic community or rather, and then the monks would sell that to people that came. Exactly. People then started sort of associating that monastery with a great beer. You mentioned Undex, South Dominica, as you know, is a wonderful place you can go and sit outside in the beer garden next to the monastery and be served by monks and enjoy this uh, wonderful beer in the sunshine. Now, Roy, in England, what's the association with uh, the church and beer? Well, really, you don't have the same continuity because, of course, with the dissolution of the monasteries in the 16th century, you lost that connection. So in the 1500s, Henry VIII? 1530s, all the monasteries in England were closed down, and so they produced not only beer in Britain, but also wine, of course. And all that that went as well. Completely, yes. And it wasn't really until later on that you start getting... uh, Also, Henry VIII could get a divorce. Just so he could get a divorce. (laughs) Incredible. 877-333-RICKS, our phone number, as we continue our appreciation of that good beer in Europe. Thanks for being our designated driver today on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK, and you can write us about your experiences appreciating the beers of Europe at radio at ricksteves.com. Our guests are Ferdy Mengi from Belgium, Roy Nichols from England, Stephen McPhillamy from Ireland, and Dave Herline, an American who's married into the culture of Denmark and is a travel expert on Scandinavia. And we've got Mary on the line from Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Mary, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you for uh, taking my call. Um, I'm thrilled to hear your guests from all over Europe talking about beer. We lived there for three years in Germany, and we lived in the town of Bitburg, which is famous for the Bitburger beer. Yes, Bitter and a bit. Yes. Yes, and uh, in fact, I still have a bumper sticker on my car. (laughs) And um, one of the things we did do whenever we traveled around, and we did go to Belgium and had the wonderful Belgian beer, is we would always try the local beers. We would always ask the waiter, for the local beer from that area. And a lot of people, they don't think of the beers when they go to Europe. They think of the wines and the things like that. And I think that uh, most of the tourists that go to Europe are missing out when they don't try the local beers because they are just wonderful, and it just hurts my heart that we can't get them here. Oh, it hurts my heart, too. They are just far superior <laughs> to American beers. Why is that? You guys, does anybody have any thoughts on Dave, Dave Herlein? I think, Mary, if I'm not mistaken, part of it is the, the German beer purity law from the 1500s where um, they said that beer can only have the natural ingredients of the water, the hops, and the barley. Exactly. The German beer is naturally carbonated. There's no carbon dioxide induced into it like it is with the American beers. They don't sit so heavy on you, and you, you really don't have as... Uh, severe after effects from them. And uh, just like one of your guests was saying that they give it to the the ladies that have just given birth to their children, they do the same thing in Germany. 
Yeah. Um, they give the ladies a beer before they go home. And over there, it's a beer a day keeps the doctor away instead of an apple. That's so true. But it has the That's same true. effect. In fact, when I was in Germany, I was uh, visiting some uh, families, and they were teaching their children to appreciate beer with a near beer, a children's beer. Oh, that yes. Was, that was actually designed for kids to learn to the, enjoy the taste of beer with a very small alcohol level. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And they have beer breaks like we have coffee breaks. Okay. I remember, Mary, when I grew up in Belgium and I was a kid, and we drank beer when we had our lunch or dinner. I mean, it was not a strong beer. We call it no. table beer, but it was like 3% of alcohol. Right. But as a kid. Right. You know, and I'm I mean, I'm 105 years old right now, so I'm pretty well. <laughs> there you well. go. <laughs> How and, can that be wrong? And Mary, it's Stephen from Ireland here. Uh, like a lot of the beer from my country is very available in America because of the presence of Irish pubs, you see. But oh, they, yes, my son works in one. Oh, there you go. Well, you see, and they say that Guinness <laughs> doesn't travel well, and I wonder what you think on that. I, I kind of agree with it, but I think it might be because it's not poured properly. I wonder, is that a reason? I have had the Guinness here in this country, and, and I'm, I like it quite a bit. I never made it to your country when I was over there, but we're planning a trip soon. Excellent. Um, but another thing is the way they pour the beers. Now, a Bitburger, that was a seven-minute beer. Oh, my God. It seven took minutes. seven minutes to properly pour a Bitburger that's why when you ordered one, then you ordered another one right away. Dave, how can that be? Well, that's a good point, Mary. And I think because it's not, the, not, it had a very uh, heavy head. Exactly. And I think that's not just Bitburger, but any of the Pilsner-style beers. Because that creamy head is important to the beer. You know, they fill the beer basically full of foam initially. It's, right. it settles down, then they have to wait. And so a lot of Americans I've been with, they order a beer, and then they're sort of thinking, hey, geez, where, where's my beer? The, did the waiter forget about us? And sure enough, like you say, seven minutes later, here comes this perfect beer right in front of you. Right, uh-huh. and it's just, it's just wonderful, just wonderful. Wunderbar. Even the foam is good. I mean, there's a difference between Germany and Belgium, the way they pour beers. I mean, I've been in Germany a lot, and I grew up, you know, in Belgium. The way they pour beers, I mean, in Germany, they pour a beer straight with the glass straight. Yes. In Belgium, they're holding the glass in an angle, mm-hmm. which yes, makes like it very fast. Here. And we have no, we don't have the patience to wait three minutes. You know? <laughs> the Belgians want to drink their beer now. So there's no three-minute beer in Belgium, really? <laughs> there's no three-minute beer That's, in Belgium. Because in Ireland, it's, it's, uh, it's sinful not to let the Guinness take its time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're, you'll see them all, a nice big tray of creamy Guinness lined up. They're just waiting for the, the black to turn into <laughs> You're white. You're tearing up as you talk. Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> salivating here. <laughs> And you can always call ahead. Say, I'm coming. Start pouring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mary, thanks for your call. Well, thank you so much. I enjoy your show immensely. Great. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking beer in Europe, and we don't have a Czech person here, but I'll tell you, Czech beer, it rivals the best in Europe, and uh, it hits the table like a, a glass of water does here in the States, and it's strong. I remember on my first trips when I was a younger guy, I would go and have my, you know, you just can hardly avoid it in a restaurant. You get a, a glass of beer with your your meal, and my momentum was always just killed for the rest of the afternoon. I always thought I'm, I'm sightseeing on Czech knees. And I realized <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just a double beer, really. What's, what That's percentage right. strength would it be? Do you know, Dave, do you know what? You know, I don't think that the beers in Europe in general are that much stronger than American ones. But I think it's just largely the quantities that they're consumed in. And to speak up for the Czechs, uh, the Pilsner beer that we spoke of earlier comes from the town of Pilsen in the Czech Republic, where it was invented in the 1800s. The Czechs are great beer drinkers. I think they're the highest per capita in the world. They'd consume something like 40 gallons a year per capita. So uh, they're very very proud of that. And they push it because you've got to actually say stop or they'll yes. keep filling you up. They'll keep bringing you beers. When your beer is almost done, you've got another one on the table. Exactly. And in Belgium, when you drink, when you order a beer, in my language, you say uh, a pils. A pils. A pils. And it comes from Pilsner. So See, you, you don't say a beer or a pint. You say a pils. Pilske. You know, if you want a small beer, which... You know, named after Pilsen. Yep. And from Elmwood Park, Illinois, is on the phone. And thanks for your call. 
Hi, thank you. Um, yeah, actually, two summers ago, um, we backpacked through Europe, and we went to 10 different countries, and our goal was to try different beers in every country. <laughs> so <laughs> we tried out more than 10 beers, 10 oh. different kinds, a few in each one. <laughs> and actually, going back to talking about the local breweries, I found those to be very good. Um, one of my favorite ones was called Kozlak from the northern part of Poland, Gdańsk. Gdańsk, and yeah. And that one does, uses no preservatives. Everything's very natural, and it's the most amazing beer you'll ever have. Hmm. Wow. And then I've another had, one I've that I've heard of a good Polish beer. That's that's yeah. interesting to know. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah. It's very very good. And I don't think a lot of people know too much about it because it's a medium sized brewery. Um, and then another one that I really liked was Rugenbrau Dunkel from Interlaken in Switzerland. And I know you like to go to Switzerland a lot, Rick. So have you had that one before? What is the name of that? Uh, Rugenbrau. What's the big beer they serve at, at Walter's Hotel? It's uh, I think the one they serve at Walter's Hotel is Feldschlossen, but that's from Basel because Walter, the owner of the hotel, is from Basel. Again, speaking to the loyalty that Europeans have for so their, for their beer. So he'll ship it all the way in to the yes. Berner Overland <laughs> from Basel. Okay, well, there is that loyalty, and I think, and the fun thing when you're traveling is to, um, you know, sample the local cuisine, whether it's uh, liquid or, or solid, and uh, certainly you go to Belgium or you go to Poland, You'll find yourself yeah. a good beer there. Mm-hmm. I, I exactly. noticed in Spain, there's different beers in Spain that are very patriotic. And in the south, everybody's drinking a certain kind, and it's lighter because it's hotter. And in the north, right. they would never drink that one because they've got their own. When I was in Oslo, man, they're not going to drink the Hansa. The Hansa's the, the <laughs> Bergen beer, I think. They're going to drink yeah. whatever's brewed there in that part of Norway. Thanks for your call, Anne. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking beer in Europe, and uh, beer is, well, all over the world. Beer represents the local cultures with a lot of pride. And how you toast people is an important part of the whole situation, the whole culture. Roy Nichols in England, tell us a little etiquette for a a visitor to England who might want to look like he knows what he's doing in a pub when he wants to toast to somebody. Well, it's the ubiquitous cheers. That's cheers. The, that's what everybody does. That's really the only way of acknowledging other drinkers and your host, maybe. And it's pretty hard to screw up then. It's just, oh, yes. <laughs> very straightforward. Because in, in, in Denmark, Dave Herline, you can screw up. It's very different in Denmark. In much of Scandinavia, you don't need to actually clink glasses. The host will say, skull. Everybody raises their glass, never higher than their eyebrow. You make quick, yet meaningful eye contact with those around the table. You drink. After you drink, you, you lower your glass and give that quick, yet meaningful eye contact again to make sure your neighbor's not getting too buzzed, <laughs> and then you drop your glass to the, to the table. So there's never any need to clink among Scandinavians. And you drop your glass to the table? Yes. After you've drank? After you've, after you've okay, after you drank. Okay, so we're all holding a, a beer here. Let's do this, Dave. Do us a okay. Danish toast. Yeah. So I would say skull. Skull. We each skull. look at each other quickly and meaningfully. <laughs> eye contact. Yeah. We drink. Oh, no, no, you look too long. <laughs> we drink. Bring our glass below our eyes, and we look again at each other. Make sure we're all doing all right. All right. Everybody doing good? Yeah, good. All right, and then and then the, the glass stand together. Yes. Now that's the sort of conviviality, a community there around the beer. That it is. probably and goes it, back centuries. Exactly, and it works especially well. I'm sure we've all been in that experience of being at a large table, especially where it becomes awkward to reach over and clink everybody's glass. Yeah. The Scandinavians know just make that quick contact with each other, and it's the same as clinking. Stephen McCullough. Well, well, in Ireland we would say one word, just like the English would say cheers. We say slancha. S-L-A-I-N-T-E, and it basically translates as health. And in Scotland, they would say slanchawa, uh, you know, same thing, good health in your life. But we don't have this pressure of the eye contact. I've worked with Danish tourists and, and Germans over the years, and when I would give them a clink and I'd say cheer or slancha, 
they would always say to me, you must, get, you must have the eye contact. And I don't really like giving the eye contact. And, and in Ireland, we we're not comfortable with the eye contact too much. It, could start it, does, a fight. it does strike me as being an Englishman where the, the system is a lot simpler. There's a serious waste of serious drinking time. <laughs> when you get w- w- waste around wondering about the eye contact. And well, one of the German girls said to me, if you don't look in the eye, when you say cheers, you'll get seven years bad sex. That's what they I say. I said, I'm yeah. Irish. I've got a lifetime of bad sex ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> but the, but it seems to be a, the eye contact is vital, but not definitely not in Ireland, and I doubt it in England as well. Probably no, right? not at all. I think that that Belgium is, is probably one of the few countries where we have a lot of words to say: skull, cheers, chin chin, gesundheit, prost. <laughs> we have about ten ways to say, and the eye contact is coming into play right now. I mean, all more right. and more we say, and we picked it up from the Austrians. The eye contact. The eye contact. You cannot cheer to each other without looking in the eye because it's not meaningful and it, right. it's not meant. And now Chin Chin is Italian, right? Chin Chin, yeah. But, but it's going all over Europe. I yeah. Think. Chin Chin. But, Stephen, when you say slancha in Ireland, that's Gaelic. If you yeah. said cheers in Ireland, isn't it more natural for you to, even if you don't speak Irish? Yeah, you'd always say slancha. Up the north now, I mean, many people, of course, in our pubs in the north are divided by Protestant and Catholic, and therefore even the beer is sadly religiously. So you go to divided. an orange, you go to a Protestant pub in in uh, Belfast. All right. Well, would you say slancha? No, you'd never say slancha. No, no for fear of offending or for fear of getting the living so data. Say, possibly you'd say what, what Roy says in jolly old England. Cheers. Wow. Yeah. Cheers. But the interesting thing about Belfast for any of your visitors who come to Ireland and they go to Belfast to, let's say, they go into a pub where that's classed as a Protestant pub. Well, they're not going to get Guinness there either. What are they going to get? They're going to get either a local beer from Belfast, maybe Bass, or is there a, but is generally there a, a Scottish beer, Tennant's or McEwan's. So there's no stout? Are, uh, not really, no. They're not more right. into their lagers. So you Irish and, guys suffer through your stout uh, just because it's Irish. Yeah, but the thing is, I know some Protestant people in Belfast who regard Guinness as the Irish Southern beer, the Catholic beer, yet Arthur Guinness was an Anglican, a Church of Ireland person, a very yeah. devout Protestant. Uh, yeah. and, it's the, and it's the national drink of, of Catholic Ireland. Yeah. Fascinating. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking beer. We're joined by Ferdinando Mengi from Belgium, Roy Nichols from England, Dave Herline from the United States, and Stephen McPhillamy from Northern Ireland. And our phone number is 877-333-RICK. Our email address, radio at ricksteves.com. Carrie's on the phone in Sioux City, Iowa. Carrie, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. Um, we homebrew when we can. We've only done a few batches so far, and I was wondering if there are any ingredients that are available only to European brewers that uh, we Americans can't uh, get our hands on. I think it's the issue of for you guys getting, for example, hops into your country. It's it's the what is it, the FDA or the immigration that that kind of not allows you to bring any uh, to import hop, European to import. hops. We got yeah. we got our own hops though. Yeah, you have your own hops. So but you're it, saying the European hops are different than the American yes. hops. Yes. How? How so? Well, it's the quality and the way it's grown and probably the soil, I think, is very important where it's grown in. And also the variety of the hops because each country has its own family of hops which produce the different types of beers that are suited to the soil and the climate, as Ferdy's already pointed out. So these have been nurtured over the centuries? Developed over hundreds of years. For and the that particular would give the climate. personality. So it really is part of the terroir. Of course, yes. Of course. It gives the, like the very wine. personality of the beer. I never thought yeah. of beer having a terroir, but I oh, can gosh, see yes. that. If you're from, if you're from uh, Dartmoor or Cornwall and you've got your hops that you really like, or if you're Welsh or German, and, and it's and, been cultivated for the centuries. In Belgium, the hops are grown in the north. You will never find hops really, really down south. You know, okay. they're all in the north, mainly because of the soil. And Carrie, see, in Ireland, we don't really homebrew at it all. It's, it's a, it's a, I think it's a great tradition. I wish we had it because it would bring a... 
a whole new vibrancy to our beer culture. I'm not sure about the rest of the lads here in Europe about home brewing, but in Ireland it's just not done. We go to the pub and we don't brew at home, sadly. But you don't even have microbrews. It's all giant corporate uh, beer in Ireland. Uh, Guinness owns practically everything. We have a few wee microbreweries starting. There's one in the middle of the Temple Bar in Dublin called the Porter House, and the odd one here and there, but generally we don't have microbreweries. Because I get sadly. the sense England is just busting out with, with little microbrews. Oh, yes, there's hundreds. I mean, every county in England will have its own at least half a dozen different types of small brewery. I mean, there are the large producers, but they're really balanced out by the, the very small producers. Kerry, is that interesting to you? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I suspect that a lot of the differences in beer as well uh, can be attributed to, you know, there's just something in the water. You know, water is different wherever you go. Well, they say that. Will That's true. Show up in the beer. Is that true? I grew up in... It's totally in, true. I, I think it's, <laughs> it's right. I've water. heard, like, for example, in, in Dublin, the water is harder and it gives the beer a certain taste, whereas in Bavaria, it's much softer. But speaking of home brewing in Europe, I think in general, they have such good beer where they are. They don't need to as much. But I do know in Scandinavia, not so much in Denmark where my wife lives, but in Norway and Sweden, where beer is very expensive, boy, home brewing of beer and making your own wine is, is very popular. And, and home brewing that's in Belgium, that the beer is usually very heavy. It's the alcohol content, it's very high when they make home brewed beer. We must remember, in fact, it's not just the hops or the water, but also all the ingredients that go into the beer. You know, the different varieties of barley, the malted barley, the main essential ingredient in beer, is going to make a huge difference. And if I think all around, if I'm thinking Czech Republic, uh, Roy's England, uh, Stevens Ireland, uh, going to a beer hall with Dave in Munich, it is the culture that comes together with this beautiful, simple drink of course, that really yeah. makes the experience magic. I can think of just glowing, memorable, like some sort of wonderful Rubens painting experience mm-hmm. relating to beer drinking in pubs with people, with a conviviality, whether you have eye contact or not, <laughs> appreciating the local well, beer. Well, this is a tradition that goes back, really back in time. This is not something we talk about for 100 years. This is generations, you know, centuries that have been... Uh, Brewing beers. Consequently, that local pride. Carrie, thanks for your call. Thank you. We've been looking at some of the variety of beers you can find among the countries of Europe and how they reflect local culture on Travel with Rick Steves. Our companions are Englishman Roy Nichols, Irishman Stephen McPhillamy, Belgian Ferdinando Mangi, plus American Dave Herline, amply representing Scandinavian drinking traditions. I'd like to close uh, letting each of you guys give us a little toast in, in your language and, and tell us just a, a little bit about it. Let's start with uh, Stephen McPhillamy in Ireland. Well, in Ireland, Dave, slancha. Slancha. <laughs> Dave Herman. In Denmark, we talked about, they say, skull. Skull means skull, and traditionally, they supposedly drank alcohol out of the skulls of their enemies. Vikings. Skull. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whoa, skull. Roy. And of course, in England, we say cheers. Cheers, Ferdy. Oh, cheers. Really. <laughs> <laughs> and Ferdinando in Belgium. Well, in Belgium, we say gesundheit. It means to your health. To your health. Gesundheit to all of you. Gesundheit. Thanks very much. Cheers. Give me my night, if not brown isle, all other drinks I'll scorn. For true English cheer is English beer, our own John Barleycorn. Hey, John Barleycorn, oh, John Barleycorn, old and young thy praises sung, John Barleycorn. Tell us about your favorite beer pilgrimages in Europe or elsewhere. You can post your suggestions for a great place to enjoy a memorable brew in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. 
Next, we'll find out about a most unusual religious relic in one of the more peculiar Italian hill towns with travel writer David Farley. He wrote An Irreverent Curiosity about Calcutta, Italy, where he went to investigate a mystery that involves centuries of intrigue. Ahoj, já jsem Honza z Prahy. Protože cestujeme s Rikem, tak cestujeme v prvé řadě po hospodá. Tak dáte si pivo. This was Czech and it means hi. My name is Honza, I'm from Prague. And since we are traveling with Rick, we are traveling mainly through the pubs. Will you have a beer with me? Ahoj, já jsem Honza z Prahy. Protože cestujeme s Rikem, tak cestujeme v prvé řadě po hospodách. Tak dáte si pivo. Italy's got to be one of the most visited and explored countries anywhere. People just love Italy, but it's important to get off the beaten path to find places that are just a little quirky and different. We're going to talk about a place that is about as quirky as it comes right now, a place called Calcutta, Calcutta in Italy, a little hill town 30 miles north of Rome. I'm joined by David Farley, and David's written a book after living there for a while called An Irreverent Curiosity in Search of the Church's Strangest Relic, in Italy's oddest town. David, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Italy's oddest town and the church's strangest relic. Explain. Well, I'll start with the town uh, Calcutta, which has been around no connection to the Indian metropolis, spelled slightly differently. It's been around for, they say, a millennium or millennia. And the interesting thing about it is that it was relatively isolated for a long time. In the 1930s, the Italian government said that the town was possibly going to slip off the rock. And so they began building a new town about a half mile away today called Calcutta Nuova, New Calcutta. And the town wasn't complete until the 1960s. And so when Calcutta was in the process of being abandoned, hippies and artists, perhaps taking refuge from the global meltdown of 1968, discovered this this beautiful medieval hilltown on 450-foot cliffs and decided to make it their own. So let's paint a picture here, David, about this town, because, I mean, this is your classic hill town. It's on a, is it a kind of like a volcanic tufa plug? That's exactly what it is. It's, it's made of tufa stone. It's a small town, just a few hundred people, I would imagine, surrounded by 450-foot cliffs. And the erosion made the government make everybody evacuate, and they were going to tear it down. Yes, that's the official story. I mean, oh, okay. It turns out there was kind of cooked up political charges is the reason why. All over Italy, it was going to be that abandoned. kind of stuff, yeah. But, but the, that's for another day. But the hippies uh, and the artists and the bohemians said, hey, free beds, free rooms. Let's move in and inhabit the place. And uh, whatever the case is, the town survives today uh, in a quirky kind of second life with this bohemian artistic community. That's right. And now aging hippies live there. Many of them are artists, so you could consider it kind of an artist commune if you want. And they all have art galleries and they have restaurants. And during the weekends, particularly, Calcutta is very thriving. Lots of Romans come there on day trips and walk down the cobblestone alleyways and eat at the restaurants and look at the art. So people who might be traveling to Rome know this is an exciting side trip. And it, it sounds like Calcutta in India, but it's spelled C-A-L-C-A-T-A. And I imagine you can get there in an hour or so by bus or train from Rome. You can. The best way is to rent a car, but because the bus journey is a slightly arduous, mm-hmm. you have to take a light rail to an outer bus station in Rome called Saxa Rubra and then wait for a bus that takes about 40 minutes. Okay. So if you're driving north of Rome, you could swing by here in, in no time and have this sort of uh, odd experience to look at a medieval town that's filled with uh, artistic sort of um, bohemians and uh, probably kind of thriving now, a little trendy stuff going on. And at the same time, you said it's it's got a connection with the church's strangest relic. Yes. In the 16th century, there was a German soldier turned up after having sacked Rome with a huge army, and he had a little souvenir with him. 
and he was captured and put in a cell in Calcutta. He was let go a little while later, but he left this prize with him in the cell, and it was found 30 years later, and it turned out to be a, a relic that in the Middle Ages was very prized. It was the Il Santissimo Prepuzio, the Holy Foreskin. The Foreskin of Jesus. That's right. Wow. Theologically, you could say the only piece of flesh he would have left on earth after he ascended into heaven. Now, was this a, a powerful relic in its day in the Middle Ages when people would travel all over Europe just to be in the presence of a relic? It was. In fact, it was so powerful, it, it had the ability to duplicate itself. Uh, in the Middle Ages, there were about a dozen towns, most of them in France for some reason, go figure, who claimed to have uh, the holy foreskin. But of course, the one that was in Rome that was eventually taken to Calcutta was the only papal-approved relic. Does this go back to um, St. Helena, Constantine's mom, who, who went on a shopping spree in the Holy Land back in the 300s? One would think, you know, it's a, it's a very uh, educated guess from you. But in fact, as the story goes, it was Charlemagne, the 8th and 9th century king, who was apparently praying in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem when an angel, or some say the Christ child, gave him a little goodie bag of sorts of relics, and inside was the holy foreskin and the piece of the true cross. Um, of course, Charlemagne never went to Jerusalem, so this was just a story concocted to give the relic even more credibility than it would have normally had. So these relics, they go back, you know, to 1,500 years or something like that. And I mean, probably most faithful sort of Catholics who use these as worship aids probably realize it's not actually a true priest of the cross or actually, you know, the, the toenail clipping of this saint or something like that. But it helps them worship. And the fact that it has a long history with the church and a thousand years of people worshiping there gives it some sort of viability. Is there anything to that? Yeah, what I learned from this book and what I found very fascinating about it was that now and we have all these historical documents and it seems very clear if you read all these documents that I dredged up that it probably was not the real flesh of Christ. But what fascinated me was that people for centuries believed it really was the flesh of Christ and they treated it as such. It doesn't matter to me that it wasn't real. What, right. As a student of history, it's that people believed it was. But as a pilgrim, that would give it more believability or more validity, I think, as thousands of people would travel all over Europe to visit these relics. Now, tell us the story. First, it was discovered in the 1500s? It was discovered in Calcutta in the 1500s. Was it a relic in Rome? I, I think I remember in your book you talked about the Sancta Sanctorum, the Holy of Holies. Exactly which is a great place to visit when you're in Rome. You can still visit it. At the top of the Scala Santa, right? Exactly. So uh, when people go to Rome, there's a famous set of stairs that Emperor Constantine's mother, Helen, brought back from the Holy Land, which is the steps leading up to Pontius Pilate's palace, right? And yes. this, this would have been the stairs that Jesus climbed on the day he was condemned. That's right. And Constantine's mother, I can just see Constantine, oh, mom, did you have to bring that back? But she goes to the Holy <laughs> Land and she brings back the whole staircase. And this staircase now leads from right across the street from St. John Lateran. Yeah, San Giovanni and Laterano. So across the street from one of the most important churches in Christendom, it's a separate building where you've got these holy steps leading up to a room that is called the Holy of Holies, where throughout the Middle Ages, the most precious relics were kept. I mean, it was just like a treasure trove of all the ultimate relics. Exactly. Now, this is the stairs that even today, countless people are climbing on their knees and... Uh, praying on each step or whatever the routine is. Yeah. And they, and 28 steps and a prayer on each step. Wow. And then they get to the top, and they are greeted by the Holy of Holies. Tell me about the Sancta Sanctorum, the Holy of Holies. They're at the top of the Holy Steps in Rome. It wasn't until just uh, in the 20th century when women were allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, actually. So now 
It's more democratic. All you have to do is have two euros on you, and you can enter this small, which is about the size of a normal-sized bedroom. It's quite barren. There's lots of ancient frescoes. It's really beautiful. The only relic that you can see there today is a chunk of the table that they used for the Last Supper, which is still tacked to the wall. But in its day, it probably looked like um, St. Paul's attic or something. It had all sorts exactly. of fascinating stuff in it. Exactly. There were the heads of St. Peter and Paul. There were lots of relics of early martyrs, and of course there was the Holy Foreskin. So the Holy Foreskin was there, and then it turns up in Calcutta, and then people got a little bit embarrassed about talking about the foreskin of Jesus, I mean, a piece of Jesus' penis. So what happened in 1900? In 1900, it turns out some of these other towns in France that were famous for having a holy foreskin in the Middle Ages suddenly rediscovered their holy foreskins as well. And uh, the Pope just decided to put an end to this It got ridiculous. You got all these people talking about this foreskin, and if only one is right, and even that is debatable. Exactly. So the Pope, Pope Leo XIII, in the year 1900, made a papal decree saying that anyone who spoke about or wrote about the holy foreskin would face excommunication. Forbidden to discuss it, except in your book you say on New Year's Day, right? Exactly. On New Year's Day in Calcutta, because until the Vatican II reforms, New Year's Day on the church calendar was the day of the holy circumcision. And so in Calcutta, when they had the relic, and even afterwards, they do a New Year's Day procession in honor of the holy foreskin. With the foreskin, they would take it out of the church. In fact, after the 1900 papal decree, it was the only time that they took it out of the church. So if you want to talk about the Holy Foreskin, you just got to jump on that opportunity January 1st every year. It's a great tradition. And I understand they didn't even call it the prepuzzi or whatever the Italian word is for foreskin. They called it just simply the relic. Yeah. I mean, you weren't allowed to say the name of the relic after the 1900 papal decree. You could just refer to it as the relic or cosa thing, but they didn't want it mentioned at all. So if you get to Rome on your travels and you meet a priest, you could kind of get him aside and say, hey, tell me about the relic. Like the priest in Calcutta, he cites this papal decree for the reason why he can't talk about the relic. But come back on January 1st and I'll give you an earload. <laughs> I don't even know if, he can, if he'll talk about it then. The reason why the book's called An Irreverent Curiosity is because later on when someone asked a church official why they banned the speaking of the holy foreskin, this church official said is because they worried it could cause an irreverent curiosity. Well, I can imagine. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with David Farley, and David's written a fascinating book called An Irreverent Curiosity in Search of the Church's Strangest Relic in Italy's Oddest Town. I'm very interested in the theological kind of puzzle created by the Nicene Council. I understand in the year 325, they're going to try to organize and set the tenets of Christianity theologically, and they had a council where all the church leaders across the land gathered in Nicaea. And they came up with the Nicene Creed, which Christians say in, in church almost every Sunday. And the conclusions from the debate on was Jesus actually God or not really had an impact on the importance of this relic. Is that right? Early Christianity is fascinating. And there were so many conflicting and different views of trying to define who Jesus Christ was. And so it came down to this, the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, which is in modern-day Turkey. And they were arguing over... One word in Greek, which I can't pronounce. In fact, it's only one letter off, literally an iota. And the definition of the word, of the two different words, was, is Christ made of the same stuff as his father or of similar stuff? Hmm. And in the end, they decided Christ is made of the same stuff. So he became part of the Godhead along with his father. So is that that line, um, Jesus was begotten, not made? Right. Christians, we say that every Sunday, Jesus was begotten, not made, and I don't think any of us really know what that means. But that was going back to the Nicene Creed to say, is he similar to God or actually God? 
And basically, if you believe in the Trinity, then Jesus is one with God, and that makes the foreskin actually a piece of God still here on earth. Exactly. And at the same time as this council was going on, as you mentioned, St. Helena, Constantine's mother, was in the Holy Land collecting all these relics. And so she came back after this sanctified shopping spree and really set Europe on a course for relic veneration for centuries to come. She even had the, the sign that was on top of the cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. As the story goes, she, she did come back Incredible. with that Incredible. David, when you studied this, you had to get into the Vatican's actual historic library. Tell us about that and what challenges that gave you. Boy, I still can't believe they let me in. <laughs> you just said, I'm doing a book about Jesus' foreskin. Can I come over on Wednesday? Yeah, I tried to you know, keep that very quiet about what my research was, stating that I was just researching Calcutta, which, which wasn't a lie because the relic's history is Calcutta's history and vice versa. And so a woman in Calcutta who has researched the Holy Foreskin for years named Patrizia, she made a deal with me. She wasn't willing to help me at all in my quest to find out what happened to this bizarre relic in Calcutta. And one day she finally made a deal with me and said, if you can get yourself into the Vatican Library, I will tell you where there are a ton of documents about this relic. And she said, the reason is because she said, as a known holy foreskin expert, I feel that when I'm at the Vatican Library, I'm being shadowed and watched. Whether or not that, that's true is another story. Wait a minute. Patricia is a known holy foreskin expert? Self-proclaimed, but yes. And then so she figures she's under a little bit of security whenever she walks around doing some studying within the Vatican walls. Exactly. You just can't Google Jesus and foreskin. You can now. <laughs> well, you can now and you'll get your name. But um, but right. if, if you wanted to really do primary research, you've got to go to the Vatican and read these old, old books in what, in Latin? Some are in Latin and some are in a kind of archaic Italian. Wow. Now, when you're dealing with the Vatican, it's serious business. I know that when I ask tour guides about sort of um, scandalous issues about how do you get into the Vatican Museum and so on, nobody will say anything upsetting about the Vatican because they know the power of the Vatican if you get in on their bad side, just in the practical reality of life in Rome. Did you encounter that at all? Um, I didn't, but then again, since the book has come out, I have not tried to go back. <laughs> so I think this might be my, my last shot has expired for trying to get into the Vatican Library again. They took your library card away. Yes, exactly. It's been revoked. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with a courageous man who just got his Vatican Library card revoked for researching a book, fascinating book, and a reverent curiosity in search of the church's strangest relic in Italy's oddest town. Now, David, we're talking about Italy's oddest town, and, and in your book you call it bewitching, but it's mostly um, populated by expats and, and bohemians and newcomers. It sort of it was a dead town, and then a bunch of squatters moved in. Uh, how is that bewitching? Well, it's bewitching when you're approaching the village. It's, it's bewitching in that it's this, you know, medieval hill town sitting like a cupcake on top of 450-foot cliffs. And then the interesting thing is that you ascend the S-shaped passageway, the only way in, the only way out, not big enough for cars, so it's completely pedestrianized. And you see these people living there, Italians, there are a few Americans, a few Spaniards, a few people from Northern Europe. You know, some of them look a little bit differently. A lot of them have spent time in India, so sometimes they're wearing hmm. kind of, you know, subcontinental flavored clothes and so on. One guy looks just like Gandhi. I've got a favorite town that's just a little north of Calcutta, which is Civita di Bagnareggio, in the same state of Lazio. It sounds like Calcutta is just sort of like Civita, another, what's the Italian word for dead town, a citta morta or something? La citta morta. But uh, la citta morta Calcutta was inhabited by these people to give it another life. We're talking about the state of Lazio. If somebody's traveling around there, what would the, the three um, interesting things in the neighborhood be to, to check out? 
well, besides Calcutta, um, Civita di Bagnareggio is a must-see, I would say. And then another one is Viterbo, which is the regional capital of northern Lazio. And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous town with massive medieval walls around it. It used to be a refuge for the popes in the Middle Ages, so there are lots of papal palaces and huge churches and cathedrals and so on. With a memorable spa. And yeah, my favorite thing to do in Viterbo, uh, which is totally off the tourist radar because it's sandwiched between Tuscany and Rome, is to go to these wild sulfur spas that dot the landscape outside of the old walls. They're just in the middle of a field. You can spot them because there's steam coming up and some you know, bathers bobbing up and down in the water. But you park your car. There are no services, no changing rooms, no refreshment stands. It's totally wild. You just change in the car, get on your bathing suit, walk up and plop into these steaming hot sulfur springs. And it's really a unique experience. And a quite historic opportunity to, to go to a, a very old spa. It is. The most famous one is called Bulikame, and it's also just right outside the walls. And it's famous because uh, Dante referenced it in The Inferno. Writer Dave Farley is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves in an interview we recorded when he first released his book called An Irreverent Curiosity, In Search of the Church's Strangest Relic in Italy's Oddest Town. You can keep up with David's work, including his articles and entries in travel writing anthologies at his website, dfarley.com. So three very interesting places to check out as you're driving north of Rome, heading for Florence or whatever. If you give yourself a day, you can check out Calcata, C-A-L-C-A-T-A. You can go to Viterbo, V-I-T-E-R-B-O, and check out the spa and the remnants of the papal enclave. And Civita di Bagnareggio, C-I-V-I-T-A, Civita di Bagnareggio. So if you're traveling north of Rome, you want to drop by these towns, give yourself a day, and keep an eye open for a silk satchel with a ribbon tied around it. David, where is the Holy Foreskin today? Well, I could say that you should read the book. However, that would be kind of mean of me just to leave it at that. So I will say that one of the popular theories in Calcutta about what happened to the relic is that the Vatican stole the Holy Foreskin. And I will just say that 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 theory is not necessarily incorrect. If you found the Holy Foreskin a little bit of an embarrassment, that might be a reasonable thing to do if you were the church with a capital C. It's true, especially if it's coexisting among all these hippies and so on. I got it. David Farley, author of An Irreverent Curiosity in Search of the Church's Strangest Relic in Italy's Oddest Town. Thanks so much. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmer Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Andrew Wakeling uploads the show to our website. Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate promotions. And our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York City for their production help today. Find out when other stations around the country are travel with Rick Steves. There's a list at ricksteves.com radio. Enjoy Europe on a Rick Steves bus tour. Our bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and dozens of exciting itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com.